Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead and anoint this time through your spirit that we will see what you'd have us to see. In your son's name, amen. All right, we're in Judges chapter 12, continuing the study of Jethoth. <clears throat> Remember, Jethoth led the revolt against the oppressors, and he won the battle, and he made a rash promise to God that he would offer a sacrifice of the first thing that came out of his, his home, which happened to be his daughter. So she was sent off to do service to God. So starting at verse 12. And the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passes you over to, to fight against the children of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house with you in, with fire. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were in great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. And when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are you come up unto me in this day to fight against me? And Japheth gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote the men of Ephraim because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim, of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. <coughs> And the Gileads took the passage of the Jordan from the Ephraimites. And it was so that when the Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, in, let us go over, that the men of Gilead said unto them, are you an Ephraimite? And, they, and if they said nay, they said, say unto us, Shibboleth. And if they said Sibboleth, they could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passage of the Jordan. And there fell at that time of the Ephraimites 42,000 and Ephraim judged Israel for six years. Then died Jephthah of the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. All right, so here we see this sound again, maybe something that sounds very familiar to you in this story. Uh, the Ephraimites coming up and are, uh, complaining that they weren't invited to the battle. All right, and we just remember at the beginning, you know, the last chapter, they called out to all the nations, you know, all the tribes around them and said, come and help us, we're going to go to war. This is exactly what happened in Judges 8 to uh, Gideon as well. In Gideon, uh, Judges 8, 1, it says, the men of Ephraim, the same tribe, said unto him, why have you served us thus, that you called us not when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison to you? Is not the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abazar? God hath delivered into my hands the prince of Midian, Oreb, and Zerub. What was I able to do in comparison to them? And their anger was abated against him and what he said. Gideon answered them very softly and diplomatically. Okay, he says, uh, well, he could have said just like Jeff, well, you didn't come when you were called. It's your problem. And, but Gideon was, you know, hey, you guys conquered a bunch of, the, bunch of these princes. What have I done? I just, I just won a battle and put them to flight. Now, Gideon did quite a bit more than just putting them to flight. But, you know, but this is that idea. The Ephraimites seem to be the type of people that when, when you call them to come to battle, they don't want to come. But once the battle's over, they want credit for that we were at least willing to come. And unfortunately, you know, that's the way many Christians are in this day and age. God, uh, you know, we need somebody to help us do something. Not me, not me. You know, almost the, 
uh, Chicken Little story, you know, or no, Mother, what was it, Mother Penny or whatever, you know, the hen that kept going, help me plant this food, and everybody didn't want to do any work, but they all wanted to enjoy the blessings of the, of the harvest. That's the Ephraimites in this, and that's the way many Christians are. We need somebody to do this, you know, pass out tracts, hand out, you know, be teaching Sunday school, you know, do service. Not me, not me. And then when there's a blessing that comes along, well, I would have done it if I was just asked. And believe me, I've heard this story over and over throughout the years, and this is the Ephraimites. You know, uh, you called for a battle. We didn't, we were going to pretend we didn't hear. Uh, you won. Why didn't you call us? You know. Huh? The mother hen story. I haven't, haven't thought about that story forever. It just popped into my head. Uh, but you know, that's the way people are. When there's the work to be done and there's a question on whether it's going to be successful, many times people are not interested in participating. After it's all over, it's like, hey, you know, why didn't you ask me to help? And it's really bad when you already asked him. Mike <laughs> Jethro has been calling these people, come and help. We're going to throw off the change of these people with God's help. Come and, come and help. And they didn't want to help when it was a, they would have to hazard their lives. But, you know, this guy's going you know, to say that, you know, we're going to, we're going to burn your houses down with fire. They're getting a little more aggressive than they were last time. You know, with Gideon, they just kind of chided with him. You didn't, you didn't invite us. And here they're talking to somebody who, if you remember, he'd gathered around to him the, the vile men, the, the vain men, the people of no reputation, why? Because he had been kicked out of his family, and he'd been rejected by everything, so everybody. And when they called him back, they've called back a warrior, okay? Somebody who's used to fighting for his rights, fighting for his life, trying to stay alive by his wits. And these people come at him with this idea of, we're going to burn your houses. And if you know anything about that kind of so, uh, <coughs> psychology and sociological thing, if you attack somebody, you're probably going to get attacked back. You know, and so they come at him very harshly, and he decides, fine. Gideon was a very, if you remember, what was Gideon's first word when they said, when the angel appeared to him, hail you mighty man of, of, of valor. And he looks around like, uh, who are you talking to? Yeah. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't Japheth. You know, Japheth was, okay, I, I'm a man of war. I'm a man of action. And they come at him saying, we're going to burn your houses down. And, it's, uh, and he goes, uh-huh, sure. And he goes to battle with them. And here's another problem in this area right now of Israel. This is now the second time we've seen kind of a civil war going on in Israel between tribes. And remember, the other one was uh, <coughs> with, uh, yes, Gideon's uh, Abimelech. <laughs> Abimelech uh, had that same principle going on. We're going to see other civil war type activities before they become a king, before they get a king. And why? Because the book of Judges has a theme in it. They did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over again, they do what's right in their own eyes because there's no overarching leadership. And so they will attack one another and fight one another and have a battle with each other. And Jathas' answer in verse 2 is, Then Jathas said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon, and when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. Okay? We were in great trouble, and you didn't come. And he's being very blunt. When I called you. 
He might have even remembered back when, the, when the, these people did the same thing to Gideon. Okay, you didn't come to Gideon and then you accused him? I'm going to make sure I call you specifically. And they decided not to come. And he says, you didn't come. And verse 3 says, and when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore are you come up to me this day to fight against me? Because, okay, I called you, you didn't come, and I decided I was going to put my life and, and my people's lives in, in jeopardy. And then he gets very bold in their face, you know, why, why are you coming up to fight with me now? And <clears throat> I just am struck with this. It's the same thing that happened to Gideon, but totally different response. Gideon was more of a diplomatic, humble man and said, hey, you know, well, I really didn't do that much. I just the, I chased these people. They, they, ran, they ran off the mountain, and I chased them. And you got to kill, you got to conquer these kings. Jephthah, the fighting man, a man of great personal high opinion of himself, says, hey, you didn't come when I called. What do you, what, how dare you come and fight to fight me? And it's kind of interesting to me as you read through the scriptures, God does not do the same things all the time. The th same things don't happen. He does something different. He delivers Israel from the Egyptians' hands. How do he does that, do that? Through the ten plagues, through the crossing of the, of the Red Sea. How did he deliver them in various battles? Well, in one battle, he, he kept the sun up for 24 hour, extra hours so they could complete the battle. In another place, he, he just sent hailstones down. God keeps doing things different. When Jesus walked this world, he did things different each, each time he healed somebody. And in that case, I know that it was to keep people from having, this is the way it's done. You know, because Jesus spoke somebody's blindness away. He made the clay one time. He spit in somebody's eyes another time. You know, he did different things. And I can almost picture for exact reasons, we didn't want anybody saying, well, this is how you heal blindness. This is what Jesus did every time. And so we've got to do it that way. Because this is a problem that we as Christians and churches have. We get ourselves in a rut. Something works, and we get stuck in that's the way to do it. And that's a very dangerous place to, to be. And I've seen churches that have pretty much died because they're trying to do things the way it worked in the past. And I've seen older churches get stuck in that. Well, this is the way we've always done it. It worked 58 years ago when we, when we started it. We don't know why we're not having the same results. Well, because God does things differently in each time. And we look at the way he's done revivals in, in history. And each time there's something different about the way he does revival. And that is mostly because man likes to exalt things. You know, this is what was done. It worked. We're going to do it again and again and again and again. And we'll be doing it for 300 years and it doesn't work anymore. But man, it worked one time. We know it's going to work again. And this is what we see when God's word. He doesn't do things the same way. He makes a new way of doing things. And it gives us confidence. Because one of the fun things about walking with God, God, what are you going to do this time? How are you going to move in my life today? And I think that's a fun thing. It makes us walk by faith, not by sight. Because otherwise, it's okay, God, I'm waiting for you. You, you started with three people coming in the door, and then it multiplied, and we're waiting for those three people to come in the door so it would multiply. And God says, nope, not going to do it that way this time. Uh, we're, we're going to do it some other way. 
And this is important because here the Ephraimites are going to get a little bit of a shock because this is not Gideon. <laughs> and he does not roll over for them. And in verse 4, And then Jepheth gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manasseh, Manassites. In other words, they're saying, you guys, don't even, you guys aren't even a tribe, which they weren't. They were a small group of people. And they said, hey, you, you really belong to us, and you're, you're in rebellion anyway, and you're hiding out amongst Manasseh. And this is something that may or may not have been true. I don't know the facts on this, but they're, they're accusing them of that. Now, hey, you're supposed to be in our family. What are you doing on the wrong side of the, wrong side of the Jordan? Um, <clears throat> not, not in your own your own place, your own inheritance. And remember, when they gave the inheritance to each of the tribes, those tribes were to keep the inheritance within the tribe. Uh, remember in Deuteronomy, the, the uh, three daughters said, hey, our father died without a son. We have, you know, there's no brother. Why, why should my father not get an inheritance? And Moses went to God, and God said, yes, they do. And he put one restriction on them. Does anybody remember the restriction that was put on the daughters? They had to marry within the tribe. Okay, they were given land that was going to belong to the tribe. So because it was going to go male to male, God said, okay, you can give them property, but they must marry somebody within their tribe. So the, land, the inheritance of that would stay within that tribe. So... Uh, that was a big deal was who keeps that land. And remember, every 50 years, all the debts were going to be rele released on the year of Jubilee, uh, that all the debts were released, including if you sold your land and your land went back to you. So the lo longest you'd ever lose your land was 50 years. <laughs> well, that was God. Well, that was God saying that, you know, now they could raise the they could raise the price, lower the price of what they were going to buy your land for for those last couple years, uh, because you know if you're only buying the land you know buying you know buying the land for six years you weren't going to pay the same price as you were buying the land for 50 years, and so technically you were only ever renting the land in their in their day. Yeah, it was a long term lease, long or short term lease depending on when you. Well, as far as, but the point for God was making is this is your inheritance. You can't get rid of it permanently. All right, so it was. You can't sell it to, can't sell it to anybody. Now you could sell it to uh, somebody else in your family, uh, because it's the same tribe, which was the principle of the kinsman redeemer. If you got yourself into so much trouble that you sold your land, or had to sell your land, the kinsman redeemer would be able. Somebody in your family would be able to buy the land back for you and keep it in the family even during that, during that period before the Jubilee. So that's called Jubilee, isn't it? Jubilee was the, the 50th year where all the land went back to the owners and debts were canceled. So that, that's what this was whole, the whole principle here was the principle of God that the land belongs to the tribe. Do not, you know, you're not to do anything to get rid of it completely. And that's where the kinsman redeemer would come in. This is also when, if you are familiar with this, when they would give out inheritances, the eldest son would get a double portion of inheritance. 
So if there were like eight kids, he would get, they would be divided up into nine parts and the oldest son would get two, two parts. Now this was not to make the oldest son richer than the rest of them in, in out and out. The oldest son was to take the extra portion he had, basically put it in the bank or invest it, and use it to pay the debts of any of his brothers and sisters who couldn't handle their money uh, so that they wouldn't lose their land. Okay, lose the family land. He was responsible to protect the family. But these are the things that are going on in here. I don't know how I got to totally sidetracked on. Oh, because they were, they were accused of being non-Ephraimites and they were supposed to be an Ephraimite. Uh, but those are just little, little facts for you to understand. When you start reading this double, double, in, double portion of inheritance, the kinsman redeemer, all of that was to keep the land in the family where it belonged. And so we look at this and it says they, they fought with Ephraim and they took, in verse 5, and the Gileads took the passage of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when the Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, let us go over, that the men of Gilead said unto them, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they should say to him, now say Shibboleth. And if he said Sibboleth, then he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him in the passage of the Jordan. And there fell at the time of the Ephraimites 42,000 people. Japheth won the battle. These guys came up against him, and it doesn't tell us how many people he had, but it tells us that 42,000 of them are going to die at the ford, okay? Just trying to get back home, 42,000 of them are going to die. And it basically says they took the passage of the Jordan or the ford, someplace where they could cross the, cross the Jordan back and forth with relative ease. And then they have this little, little thing about how they couldn't pronounce the right word, okay? And uh, the one is... Shiboleth and then Siboleth without the SH, so that they could not say the SH apparently. And you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with different dialects and everything of places, but you know, we know that you can hear accents in people. And this is what they're basically saying that these guys had something about the way that they said letters that they couldn't say this particular word correctly. They could not make the SH sound at the beginning of the word and ended up with just an S, okay? It's kind of funny because you can, you know, if you know, if you've been around people, some people that have accents from other countries or even accents from other parts of the United States, it's, it's funny to listen to the way certain words are said, even though they're not, you know, they say it close enough, you know what it is oftentimes. And in this case, this word probably would not have been that big a deal. It's close enough to, to know which one that they were saying. But it also identified them as non-Gileads. <laughs> and that they were from Ephraim, and it cost them their life to not be able to say a word. And you, know, and you can kind of think about this, because this is also, if you remember in Matthew 26, Peter is in the courtyard denying Jesus. And one of the people said, you, we know you're one of his followers because your, your, your uh, voice tells us that you are from Galilee. Okay? Uh, that's that same type of thing. Something about whatever his speech was told them, you're not from jo uh, Jerusalem. You're not even from this area. You're from up north. Uh, that would be like somebody talking to a southerner who's always saying, y'all, yeah. And, and drawing out their, their words and going, 
well, we know, and being up north trying to say I'm not from, you know, that I'm not from the south, you know, and that's, that's this type of, type of thing going on, okay? We know that these guys are not who they say they are. And 42,000 of them die at the Ford. Now, you would think that they would get the idea not to cross the Ford long before 42,000 of them die. Uh, but sometimes people don't think very well. And some of these may have also been at the battle. Uh, but it says in the verse 6, Then they took them and slew them at the, pa at the passage of Jordan, and there fell at that time of, of Ephraim 42,000. So to me it just seems kind of strange that 42,000 of them keep trying to cross the, the ford and losing their life. Uh, but nobody ever said people are smart. <laughs> Yeah. Well, plus you've got to think it was probably a long way around to get, you know, because if you didn't cross here, if you didn't cross here, you're going to have to go north beyond the Sea of Galilee and come back around and come back down again, or you're going to have to go really far south to the next, next ford, you know, and, and come back around. So maybe, you know, these guys not only are, are foolish and 42,000 of them dying, they're also lazy. They don't want to take an extra couple of days to get home and end up dying in the process. Uh, Jordan is a hard, actually a hard river to, to use a boat on because uh, it is very narrow. It's kind of like the Colorado River. It's narrow in so many places that you can't just use a boat in, in most of the places. And other places are so deep you can't, you really can't get across by, by walking. And who knows, these guys also have all their armor and everything, so they're not, they're not swimming. So, and I don't know how many of them had boats. Uh, because they came across the ford, they expected to go back across the ford. And nobody had a pontoon bridge back then. They <laughs> didn't bring in the ducks or the, or the pontoon bridges. All right, in verse 7, And Jethoth judged Israel six years, then died Jethoth the Gileadite, and he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. So they don't even know where he was buried. He was just taken away and buried. He only was six years. A lot of these guys did not last very long in their judging. And I think most of the time these guys are fairly old before they became judges. And I think in process God might not have wanted them to have 30, 40, 50, 60 years as a judge because then that starts building a dynasty because you start thinking, well, I've ruled this long. My children should automatically become judges. And we're going to see that that's one of the thoughts that Samuel had later on when we get the book of Samuel or that no, Eli had, that his children were going to rule, and he didn't discipline his children, and his children were very uh, bad, so bad that the people finally rejected, rejected uh, the judges because of how bad his children were. And Samuel's children, and Samuel wasn't having a better time either. A lot of these guys we see in the Bible that were very strong with God and great leaders for God were very bad fathers. We see this over and over, how bad a father they were. Uh, we see even in Abraham, he, he had problems with his two sons because he preferred Ishmael over, over uh, Isaac for the most part, even though God said Isaac's going to be the one I've come. Isaac prefers Esau over, over uh, Jacob. Uh, Jacob ha has his favorite sons, which comes from his favorite wives, uh, Joseph and uh, Benjamin which causes no end to problems, so much problems that Joseph is sold into slavery by his other, other 10 brothers. 
Uh, we see this over and over and over again. David has all kinds of family problems because he can't seem to discipline his kids. Of course, he had too many wives to, to deal with most of these kids. Samuel, uh, Solomon doesn't appear to be much better as a father. And of course, he had probably way too many kids with a thousand wives and concubines. Uh, but each one of these, we see over and over again how these great leaders of God do not seem to be good fathers. And I think part of it is they put too much time on God and not enough on their family. And that's one of the things that pastors and leaders in churches struggle with. How do I put enough time into dealing with God's people and yet invest time into my, into my family? And a lot of times the worst kids in the, in the church are the, are the pastor's kids. And there's a two-way street on that. Part of it is that people expect the pastor's kids to be perfect because they're the pastor's kids. So when they are just being kids, so part of it is they get a bum rap. Okay, well, you know, we had five kids playing, in the, you know, playing at the baptistry in the water, and one of them was the pastor's kid. He was really bad. The other four, they were just being kids. Okay, so they, in some sense, they get a really bad rap. You know, they should know better. They, and on the other side, if they get ignored enough, they really are the, some of the worst kids in the church. Partially because they're trying to get attention. They're trying to get attention from their dad and, and anybody who will give them attention. But that's what we see in the scriptures is these guys that are making great leaders oftentimes have a really poor family life. And it's a hard balance. It is a hard balance to, to be somebody who is in charge and, and running things and ministering to lots of people and also minister to your family, which is why in the New Testament, one of the restrictions on pastors and deacons are that they rule their families well. Okay, they don't have the worst kid in the neighborhood and you say, okay, you can't take care of your own family, your own kids, we're gonna make you in charge of the church. Uh, that's what Paul's saying, don't do that. You know, they, you know, are they gonna have perfect kids and perfect families? No, but they should have a generally good pro family. They should be able to look and say, my kids have grown up and they're going and, and they are at least respectable citizens in the community or they've even gone on to be ministers themselves. Uh, you know, the, the pastor saying, well, I have six kids and five of them are in prison and one's, and one's a bum, bum, you know, they're going, that's probably not the person you want to be the pastor. Uh, so, uh, and this is what we're looking at. He, you know, is this judge. All right, verse eight. <laughs> And after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, whom he sent abroad and took, on, took in 30 dollars from, daughters from abroad for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And Ibzan was buried at Bethlehem. All right, so here we have the next guy, and he's another one of those really famous guys. All it tells us is he had a whole lot of kids. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, he, he ends up with 60 kids. 30 sons and 30 daughters. Uh, he either had one very busy wife or he had a lot of wives. Uh, probably a lot of wives, I would think. But So he ends up with 60 kids of his own. And then it says in, in verse 9, and, it, and took in 30 daughters from abroad for his sons. Now, does anybody catch what's important in that statement? He did not choose people from Israel. He took for his sons and got them foreign wives and said, here, I really got a good idea for you. I want you to follow the, follow the God of Israel and we're going to give you wives that aren't going to follow the God of it, that aren't going to start following by following the God of Israel. 
How many times have we read that that's a terrible thing? Balaam told Balak, you know, hey, you want to get Israel in trouble? Go send the women in and get the, get the guys to, to worship your, your God, and God will, God will discipline them. And sure enough, God kills a couple thousand people of Israel just because they started worshiping idols. Solomon's great downfall was that most of his wives and concubines were from other countries worshiping other gods. And you can picture how the story went with, with Abraham, uh, with Abraham, with Solomon. You know, hey, Solomon, honey, you know, I really miss wor worshiping. Will you come and worship my God? Solomon probably started out with a very strong, no, I, I'm worshiping God. He gave me all my wisdom. You know, and enough nagging on him said, okay, well, I'll build you a temple. You can worship your gods. And then sooner or later, it was, well, Solomon, you never come to my temple. How can you never come to my temple to worship? And he would have started out with, you know, no, I, you know, I'm worshiping God. You know, you should be happy. I built you a temple for your God. I shouldn't have done that, but I did that just to please you. And eventually he goes and, you know, well, I've been bugged. I'll go one day with you to your temple. And before long, Solomon is, is falling away from God, trying to figure out the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vanity. Everything is, is worthless until he gets right with God. Oh, yeah, 60 different gods following the life. Well, at least 30 in this guy, oh, yeah. depending on what countries he pulled them from. Now, was every son going to fall because of the foreign wife? No, probably not, but most of them probably did, which is why in the New Testament, Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked. And that is not just for marriage. That is for business and everything else that goes on in our life. If you're going to have an intimate relationship with somebody, whether it's business, work, family, you better make sure you're on the same page. And this works in the business world. If somebody is a Christian and somebody is not a Christian, and they're trying to figure out how to sell their products, and the Christian is a good, strong Christian wanting to be honest in all their dealings, and the other one says, well, we can, do, we can tell lies and everything. That's what everybody does. You know, you've got a battle brewing right from something as simple as that. When you bring two people together, maybe they can get along without fighting. But what happens when you bring kids into the family? And one wants to bring the kids up in the church, and the other one says, well, no, we'll just let the kids make their decision when they're older. Don't try to force them to make a decision for God. Or worse yet, two different religions. All right, we want to raise our kid Christian. I want to raise him Buddhist. Buddhist is going to hell. I'm going to, as a Christian, you know, be fighting to have him as Christian. And the Buddhist is going, well, that's too narrow. We've got to be looking at this, this is something that's very important. And this guy is setting his boys up for falling away from God, which you're already having trouble with. The idols are being worshipped all over the, over, over the place every time they turn around. And he's setting his children up for failure. And he's the, the, one of the judges of Israel. <laughs> yeah. didn't, didn't really do a great job as far as that goes. And he's from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem, of course, is what, where the city that David's from. It's going to be the city where Jesus is from, uh, were born in, and uh, very important city in, the, in, the, in Judah, even though at that time it's a very small city. Verse 11, and after him, Elon, a, a Zebulite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulite, died and was buried in Asia on the, in the country of Zebulun. All right, so this wonderful leader, Ebulon, which means Oak Grove, uh, all we know about him is he judged for 10 years. 
Some of these judges uh, have an illustrious career, you know, and it's kind of sad that nothing good or bad, I mean, it's good that nothing bad's been said about him, but it's kind of sad that nothing good has been said about him. You know, with uh, Ibzan, we have that bad, he, he married off his sons to foreign wives. This, this guy, Elon, nothing. Nothing good or bad said about him. But he did, run, he did reign for, judge them for, I, for 10 years. I don't want to say reign because that's not really a right term on it. All right. Verse 13, and after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Pithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 nephews that rode on 70 donkey colts, and he judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pithonite died and was buried in Pithon in the land of Ephraim in the Mount of the Amalekites. All right, so here we have another guy. He is, his claim to fame is having 40 sons and 30 nephews. These guys had large families. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no, 70. Three score and 10. 70. Three score and 10, 70. So one donkey, one donkey, uh, a score is 20. That's like when Abraham Lincoln started his famous four score and seven years ago, it's 87 years ago. Uh, we don't, don't use score anymore <laughs> very often. Uh, so this guy's claim to fame is he had a lot of kids and his, and his uh, brothers and sisters had a bunch of kids. Uh, 70 kids that he's trying to put in power and he has them all riding on donkeys. And now think about this, because we don't really think of donkeys as having or being that great an animal. But donkeys were used all the time, especially by royalty back in then, because of many things. Uh, they're sure-footed. They don't make good uh, fighting animals, but they're very sure-footed and can get them around. And we've talked about this when we talked about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry when they declared him as, as God. He came in riding a donkey, and a king coming into a city on a donkey said, I'm coming in peace. If he came in on a horse, it means he's coming in as a conqueror. So these guys were on donkeys, which meant that they were ruling, but they were to rule by peaceful means. They weren't coming in as conquerors. And that's why all through this book, we see them riding donkeys, not horses. Horses were somebody that was for very, very rich, and very conquering and saying, I am in charge type deal. And so I just want to bring that out as we see these donkeys. It's, you know, we look at it and say, well, donkeys, why are, these, why are all these guys riding donkeys all the time? And it, it is to symbolize we're coming in peace and is also because most of them weren't very wealthy. Horses were for the very wealthy. And the other thing in, Judah at this, in, in Israel at this time is they didn't have a lot of horses. Horses were in Egypt and other parts of Arabia. And God even told them, do not multiply unto yourself horses, especially to the kings. Or before he even introduced kings, he said, the king is to do a couple of things. Number one, a king was to write a copy of the law in his own handwriting and read it all the time. That's something the kings did not do. As, you know, we, I don't think there was any record of any of them ever writing their own copy of the, of the, of the law. I'm not saying that any of them didn't, you know, that none of them did, but there's no scripture to back up that any of them did. So they were to write their own copy of the law and read it. 
because mostly the law was in the temple and you read it, it was read in the temple. The other thing they would do is do not multiply wives. Okay, that worked out real well. David himself ends up with a bunch of wives. Uh, Solomon, you know, beats his dad by hands down with wives. And many of the other ones are going to have multiple wives. The other thing they were told, don't multiply horses unto yourself. And then one of the things we find about Solomon is that he has hundreds of chariot teams. You know, hundreds or thousands, I can't remember. He had lots and lots and lots of horses. And why did they not want these things? Well, the law was so that they'd be able to read the scriptures, you know, in their own chambers or have it read to them or whatever, so that they would know God's words and thoughts. Same reason why we should be reading God's word, so that we will know his word and his thoughts. So the kings were supposed to have their own copy, whether they read it personally or had an attendant read it, it didn't really matter. They would hear the word and know what God asked of them. The other thing was not to add a whole bunch of wives, which we've talked already about Solomon. Solomon's, you know, huge amount of wives caused him problems. And one thing about it, and we, we read it in the, in the scriptures, a lot of people will read, well, all these guys had more than one wife, so God must approve of it. No, God never approved of polygamy. It is man's sinful nature that puts him, because every time you look at polygamy in the Bible, bad things happen. Okay, every single time including the very first one who ended up killing a man and, and, and everything, and he was the first one that's listed as a polygamy, uh, having polygamy, and his was a bad deal. And we look at Abraham with two, two wives when he took Hagar as his wife, and that caused jealousy between Hagar and Sarah, so much so that Sarah beat Hagar one time because Solomon... Uh, uh, Abraham said, well, she may be my, my wife or concubine, but she's still your servant. And Sarah beat <laughs> Hagar so bad that she ran away and, and the angel met her and, and, and told her to go back. Okay, so we see polygamy in that case. We see it in, in Jacob's case. Wow, you know, four wives and there was all kinds of jealousy. If you read, you read through his story and they're all battling on who's going to sleep with him that night to have another kid and and he's got his favorite his favorite wife and her sons are his favorite and she's the last one to to give children uh, we see Samuel's family where the mother Samuel's mother was barren for so long and the other one the other wife had many many children and she was you know just constantly on on her case about how oh well you, you may be the favorite wife but I'm the one that's given them all his kids and we see this over and over that polygamy always leads to problems. It's not God's design. In the very beginning, God said that he created woman to be the helpmate for man. And so God has that plan of one to one, not one to many. Yeah, he didn't make two or three Eves to help Adam out. He, you know, and most men realize that one wife's more than enough. Uh, A lot of them had a lot of wives, and every time they were listed in there, there was bad problems about it. David's going to have all kinds of problems from all of his wives. Solomon's going to have problems with his wives. You know, we just see over and over multiple wives cause problems. Basically, God's saying, okay, you guys are hard-hearted enough. You want to do it. I'm not going to totally forbid it, but it's not a wise thing. One-on-one, -on -one, the jealousy is the factor that gets put into it is a really bad thing. Samuel, did you have a question? You had your hand raised up? Uh, 
40,000 horses. Yeah, I knew he had a lot of horses. I couldn't remember how many. 40,000, yeah, 10,000 10, chariots. So. Yeah. So, now the thing about, now getting to that last one, we talked about the word, we talked about the reason for, no, for not multiplying horses was that he did, God did not want them saying, I am militarily strong. Because in that day, horses were the, the strength. The, the chariots and the horses were your, your fast-moving attack uh, thing. So they, when they, if you remember in Joshua, it talked about that one, the one nation they were fighting that had thousand chariots. Chariots were the kind of our equivalent to tanks in our day. They could run through, run through the lines. They, they did lots of damage because they would put you know swords and stuff on the tires so that anybody standing near it would be chopped up. There was and they would just overrun things. So God says, read my word daily with your own copy of it. Don't multiply wives that are going to get you into trouble, especially foreign wives, and don't start depending upon your own military strength. Yeah, did at one time he say no chariots Don't think he said no chariots, but he, he didn't want them, yeah. you know, if you're not multiplying horses, you're not going to multiply chariots either. Because God wanted to be the one that says, I am your deliverance. David gets in trouble in his lifetime because he counts the people with the wrong motive. He wants to count the people to see how strong he is. How big an army do I have? And God disciplined David for that. You know, it wasn't necessarily wrong that he counted the people to know how many people he's ruling, but his motivation was, I'm going to count these people, or I'm going to see how big my army is. God, I've got 100,000 people, or whatever the number was. I'm, I am really strong. I can, I can go to war. I can defend myself. And God says, okay, now we're going to punish you. No, that was Gideon. That was Gideon who was told, your, your, your 120,000 is too many, your 30,000 is too many, gets him down to 300 people. But it's the same principle. Yeah. You're not to depend on your army. Now, again, even when he had his full army, he was still outnumbered two to one. Then he got down to 30,000, he's outnumbered four to one, and then he gets down to you know, 300. There's no way 300 is going to win the battle. And God's saying, see, I want you to depend on me. And this is the same message for us as, as Christians. You know, we're to read God's word daily just as the kings were so that we'll know God's word. You know, we also should not multiply wives unto ourselves, which is you know, against the law in our country anyway, but you know, it's something that's, again, wise. But he also says don't depend on your own strength. And this is so important for us. We walk by faith. We're not to depend upon ourselves. Because so many people, it goes back to where we started at the beginning, the Ephraimites come and say, hey, you know, you, we, we ignored you when you called, so we're going to pretend you didn't call us. And now, now that you're victorious, we're going to be angry that you didn't call us. Yeah. Well, we're afraid to move. We're not going to stand in faith and move out. This is what paralyzes so many Christians. They see the enemy, and they don't trust God. And it's so important for us to really trust God. How big a God do we have? How powerful a God do we have is so important to us. Now, we know in our, minds, in our mind that God is omnipotent. He's, he's all-powerful. We know that he's omniscient. He's everywhere. But how often do we act 
as if he isn't any of those things. You know, God, uh, this is just a situation I just can't see you getting me out of, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal with it. God, I just don't think you're going to give me the right words to say to this person, so I'm just not going to say anything. God, I'm not going to do, you know, whatever it is. You know, God, you said you want my tithe, but I just don't think you're strong enough to, to pay my bills if I give 10% of my money away. God, I just think, you know, you know I know you're asking me to, to go into all the world and, and preach, but you know, God, I, I can't even go tell my, talk to my neighbor about you. And God's saying, how big am I? How strong am I? You know, these are the practical things that we face day to day. God always keeps putting us in places to say, do you believe? Do you believe? God tells us thing in, things in his word, and he goes, do you believe my word? In the 1800s, when evolution was becoming popular, many of the theologians said, we've got to figure out how to make science fit into the Bible, and they come up with some very bizarre ideas to try to mesh the two together, and it wasn't even real science that they were trying to mesh with it. It was false science, and they're meshing false science with the truth, and you cannot mix truth and lies together and come out with something that's true. And this is why we've got to look at the word. If we're reading God's word and we say, this is what God says, and the world comes at us with something totally different, we have to make a decision. God, I'm going to stand on what you say. I'm going to stand on what you say because you're true. Well, some of our big issues in our day, Sunday we were talking about how they said in, in the last days that many will be uh, father uh, murderers and mother murderers and you know when people read that for years it was like what does this mean and now we're finding euthanasia being a big issue let's kill the our parents you know they're getting to be a drain on our finance on our inheritance if they keep if they keep living you know and they're not living quality life you know that's the big term quality life they're not out to able to get out and do everything they want the you know, they lost their license and we have to go, we have to take time out to give them rides and, and take them places and take care of them. And then all of a sudden, well, it'd just be better off if mom and dad were dead. God says, honor your parents, you know, protect them, don't. And yet, one of our big issues is this whole euthanasia issue. You know, and we're looking at all these different things, people living in fornication and the world saying it's okay. And how many Christians live together without getting married in our day and age is just phenomenal. You know, you talk to them oftentimes and they'll pass themselves off as if they're married in the church. Mostly because they know they're going to be told that they're living in sin if they don't. But, you know, we look at this and we say, are we going to stand on God's word or not? When God says something, am I going to stand on his word or am I going to hide what I believe and try to agree with the with the world. And this is important for us. And I've said this many times. What do we think is funny? You know, most comedians make fun of everything God says is, is precious. Family, uh, marriage, church. You know, and there's a place where you can have some poke a little bit of fun at this, but sometimes they go a little, a little overboard. I think a lot overboard in most cases. And we need to be saying, God, what do you say? What do you think? Would God laugh at some of these things that we think are funny? Would he watch some of the shows that we watch and fill in our minds with all the garbage? Would he read the same books? Would he participate in some of the conversations we participate in? 
And it takes us back to the WWJD, what would Jesus do mentality, but that's important. It really is important to know his word well enough to know, would God participate in these activities? And if he won't, we shouldn't. You know, plain and simple, if God would not participate in a particular activity, we should not. And this gets us down to where we have the liberty to do anything. We're not under the law anymore. But by the same token, liberty means can I do it absolutely with no concern of whether it's right or wrong? If you doubt whether it's right, then you shouldn't be doing it. And I've heard people go, well, I can take my drink, but you, but you talk to them a little bit, well, you know, I probably maybe shouldn't. I don't know that it's really good. That person shouldn't be drinking. You know, plain and simple. You know, if somebody's going out and gambling, yeah, well, I feel a little bad about wasting my money sometimes. They probably shouldn't be gambling because God's putting a little doubt in their mind about the liberty that they have on it. And they need to be absolutely sure that they're able to do it. And that's what Paul was telling them in Corinthians. You know, hey, if you can go out and buy meat at the, at the temple, offer to the idol with no problems, go ahead and do it. And in his mind, it's like there is no problem. It's just a block of wood or a block of gold that, you're, that they're offered it to. It's no big deal. Because, but if it's going to offend your brother, don't do it. And so there's a, our liberty needs to also be balanced by, does it offend another Christian? And that's a very fine line, too, because granted, they should not be offended at your liberty. But, you know, we tend to judge one another all the time, and it's sad. It's very hard to walk in grace and love for one another and say, okay, you're not, you're not where I'm at. Praise God. But the great epitome of Christian maturity is when you see somebody not doing something that you think is right, that you say, okay, let you grow. Let you grow. Great sign of immature Christians are people judging one another for, what the, for their freedom. You've got a long ways to go. You know, the more mature we get, hopefully, the less we judge one another for what we do. And, and it's just giving grace. Okay, you, you have no problem gambling? Go ahead. You have no problem drinking? Just don't get drunk. The Bible doesn't say don't get drunk, but being able to answer to God. And you know, the thing I've learned over the years, if you just let people answer to God, God has a great way of getting, getting into what they need to do. God has worked really well in my life all the time saying, you shouldn't do this. And when I don't listen, he gets, he takes me out to the woodshed and spanks me a little bit and says, are you ready to listen yet? And if that doesn't work, he takes it a little longer at the woodshed. You know, God works wonders with us. He does things that we cannot begin to understand, and he will get his way. He really will. He, he'll, he'll make sure he gets his way in enough time, and he has lots of time. God does not look at time the way we do. You know, we're, most of us as humans, is something didn't get done in 30 seconds, you were really too slow. And God says, uh, years, decades, <laughs> centuries sometimes to make things happen. We, and one of my favorite stories is Abraham leaving the Ur of Chaldees and stopping in Haran for 20 years. Just stopping. He wasn't even obedient when he left Haran because he said, leave your, leave your family behind. And he takes his dad with him, which is why he stops in Haran. Okay, he stops in Haran for 20 years before he gets busy going doing God's way. Most of us would say, Abraham, you stop for 20 years next. <laughs> Give me, give me the next, give me the next uh, candidate. And God says, okay, we'll, we'll get you where you belong eventually. 
And you know what? I am so glad that God is patient. I really am glad that he's been patient because it's taken me a long time to learn some lessons. And God's so patient with me. And because he's been patient with me, I try to be patient with others because, hey, if it's taken me six years to learn one lesson, how, who am I to judge somebody that's taken just a few months? Uh, but, you know, again, we as humans tend to have this idea of, God, I want this and I want it yesterday. <laughs> I just started praying about it today, but I really wanted it yesterday. <laughs> and that's the attitude we have to him and usually to other Christians. And, you know, we need to just be able to say, in your time, God, you know, you'll make all things beautiful in your time, as, as the hymn goes. And he will work it out. He will put enough pressure on somebody to get them to do what he wants. And it may just take a long time for it to happen. And we cannot judge each other by our time standards. And as I've said before, if I'm judging another person, they're probably judging me for things that they can't do that I can do. And that's why as really good, mature Christians, we're not to judge one another. Because I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. And the things he's worked out in my life, he hasn't even begun to touch in your life. And things he's worked out of your life, he hasn't even begun to touch in my life. And that's the way we should look at each other. God, you're working on this person in your own individual plan. And I like the fact that God has an individual plan for each of us. Because all of us are, come to him at a different place. Come to him with different problems, different attitudes. I came to him at a very young age, and he got hold of my life at a very young age to not go into a lot of the stuff other people did. So he's working on me on things that, that I would never expect anybody else to get rid of because I didn't have to get rid of a lot of the garbage that they had. And yet other people have come. They didn't get saved until they're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, a whole life of not following God. How much work does God have to do to get them even on the beginning pages? You know, get rid of a lot of stuff that's, you know, somebody who grew up in the church may not have ever had to deal with. And God says, I'm working with them. And in many cases, they, they have an advantage. They're able to reach people that I could never reach. And there's people I can't hardly reach because even though I understand sin is sin and, the, and getting rid of sin is the same, but if I go to somebody who's been a drunk all their life or, or somebody on drugs all their life, they go, well, what do you know about this problem? Well, Maybe not that particular problem, but I know what it means to have lust and, and other temptations, and it's really the same problems. The answers are always the same. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, getting you out of the problem. But most people that are in a problem don't recognize that it's the same as everything else because they bought into one lie of Satan. Nobody would understand what you are because they haven't been there. You know, that's a lie from Satan that he gives us all the time. Well, so-and-so can't understand you because somehow they're perfect. Their sin's not as bad. And, you know, and that's really what he's saying. That's what Satan is telling us is, you know, you are just such a terrible person. Nobody has ever had your, your problem. You know, go back to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay? So when you're being told that by Satan that you are the only one that's got this problem, that's a lie from Satan. And as soon as you open up eventually and admit your faults and, and start talking about your victory, all kinds of people are going, I'm so glad you said that. I, I've had that same problem. And you're going, I suffered for 10, 20, 30, 40 years thinking I was the only one, and all these people now are telling me they have the same problem. Yeah. 
always remember that if you're suffering from some temptation, other people have it. There is no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Okay? Nothing new under the sun. You know, when you're being lied to, to say, by Satan that nobody will understand how bad you are because nobody's had your same temptation. Or you're sitting in the middle of church service listening to a message and all of a sudden this crazy temptation comes flying at you from out of the middle of nowhere. And, go, and if you even think about it, you get the attack. What a, what a wicked person. How could you have been thinking that thought in the middle of a sermon? Well, nothing new under the sun. Same temptation. Everybody's gone through it. Everybody's gone through these kind of thoughts. And always remember this. There's nothing new under the sun. When we are tempted, it is just Satan doing what he does. And then once we entertain that temptation just for a second, he'll tell us how awful we are for even having ever thought about it. And it wasn't even our thought at first. It was his projection to us. And then we started thinking about it. And he'll go, oh, you're a terrible person. Nobody's ever going to forgive you for that. If they knew how awful you were and the things you thought about during service. You know, I can tell you right now, when people are sitting in that service, I know that not everybody's thinking about the message. Okay? At least not for the whole, whole time of the message. Because... There are projections. Satan doesn't want us thinking about what's being said by the message. He doesn't want us thinking about God's word. How many times you've been reading God's word and all of a sudden you get this thought out of the, out of the blue that's either really sinful or just distracting. And it's like, okay, God, I'm trying to read your word. Where did, where did this come from? It came from the demonic world trying to get you to think about the wrong thoughts and then, then criticize you for thinking about that way when you're supposed to be spending time with God and telling you how God's never going to accept you when you can't even concentrate on his word. We've all been there. Every single person's been there. And so we just look at these things, and this poor guy is buried in, on, a, on the mountain of the Amalekites, and that is this short list of people. And then we're going to start seeing um, Samson. Samson will be our next character to be taking over. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come and look at your word. Lord, help us to keep focused on you and what you would have us to do, and not on programs and plans, but to listen to your voice. And help us to always understand that whatever we're going through, others go through, and it's not isolation and not something unique to us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.